Please stand for the reading of God's word. So Luke 24, 13 through 32. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? This is God's word. Good morning. So this morning we start a new series that's going to take us through the summer. Finally finished up with... Philippians and jumping into a new series that I'm very excited about that begins today. If you've been paying attention over the last couple months, this passage should seem a little familiar. This is the passage we walked through on Easter Sunday. This is my favorite of all the resurrection accounts, how Jesus, the risen Christ, on that first Easter morning appears to these two disciples on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And uh, just an amazing story. This morning, for these two disciples, their morning began in a place of utter despair and hopelessness and grief. Their, their uh, leader, Jesus, had been crucified three days before, and they're left to try to figure out, what, what do we do? How do we pick up the pieces? And so for some reason, they're heading to Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. It's about a two-hour walk, I imagine. And I was thinking this week, uh, what that seven-mile journey did to them and how much different they felt at the end of that journey to where they started. How that two hours utterly changed their hearts. They went from this place of just brokenness and sadness to unbelievable surprise and joy and elation, finding out that Jesus, Jesus was alive. And of course, the change that happened in their minds from confusion and doubt and wonderment to this place of coming to understand 
what Jesus was all about and that he was alive and that the story had always been pointing to that. And I want to focus this, we're not going to uh, study this passage today, uh, but I want to focus on verse 25 to 27 for a second. Take a look at it. Jesus says to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now on Easter, I said, wouldn't you have loved to have been of that part of that conversation? Right? To have the, Jesus, the word of God, explain the word of God <laughs> and how it all points and culminates in the story about him and his death and resurrection. And they certainly experienced that as an amazing thing. Verse 32, they say, we're not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures. Uh, and on Easter, I said, you know, we'll never know for sure what passages in the Old Testament Jesus walked them through. We're just not given access to that. Um, but if we understand our scriptures, we can make some pretty educated guesses, at least some of the themes and stories and prophecies that he would have walked them through on that seven-mile journey. And so basically, that's what we're going to do this summer. We're going to consider what are some of those stories from the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, those themes and prophecies that point to Jesus and who he is. We're going to go on our own Emmaus Road journey that will take us uh, not two hours, but a whole summer. And each week, we'll take a specific theme of the Old Testament uh, or a prophecy or uh, a story and trace it through and see how that theme finds its culmination and fulfillment in the person of Jesus. So the goal this summer is simply this. It's to see Jesus again, but to see him in the fullness of of who he is, the diverse, complex, beautiful array of Old Testament themes and stories that tell us and paint a portrait of who Jesus is. So we just got through Philippians, which I said was this letter about the Jesus life. So now this summer, we're going to look at Jesus himself in all his fullness through the Old Testament stories. Uh, one of my favorite passages in scripture, favorite verses is from Ephesians 3. Uh, where Paul says this, this grace was given to me, this is Paul speaking, uh, to preach to the Gentiles, I love this phrase, the unsearchable riches of Christ. There's, such, there's so much depth to try to explore in our understanding of who Jesus is. And that's our goal this summer, to, to, to search out a few of the unsearchable riches of who Jesus is through the Old Testament stories. And I hope that that's the goal to see Jesus, but I hope in the process, uh, a byproduct of the series is you will come to love your scriptures even more. And this is what happens for me. I mean, when you read the story, things that were said thousands of years ago, and you see how the story has this thread that gets fulfilled in Jesus. And like, this was said like 4,000 years before. And look at how this, this comes to fruition. It's kind of its own apologetic for the Bible. This, it's very a, a self-authenticating reality. This, this is really true. No human being could possibly invent this and make it work the way it has. This has to be God's word. And so I hope that your love for the scriptures will be enhanced as well. So today what we're going to do, um, before we jump into the first Old Testament theme, is this. I want to just tell the story of the Hebrew scriptures to you so that we're all on the same page. What is the story? Basically, from Genesis to the book of Malachi to when Jesus comes onto the scene, I want to do my best to share in brief the Old Testament story. Uh, my experience with a lot of Christians, and I would guess some of you would relate to this, is I know a lot of Christians who've gone to church all their lives, and they know the stories 
plural of scripture. Like, yeah, I know the story of, you know, Adam and Eve and Moses and the burning bush and David and Goliath and, you know, these stories. But they don't know, like, the story. They, they don't know how it all fits together in a comprehensive whole. If I gave them a timeline, they wouldn't know, like, where does that story fit with this story and with this story and that. So I want to try to give us today the, the overarching capital S story. So that's what I'm going to do today. And before I tell the story, I want to share one assumption that I personally have about the story of the Old and New Testament, which is this. My assumption is there is great consistency between what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's great continuity between the two. Clearly in the New Testament, something new is happening, but that something is very much a continuation and a fulfillment of the story that begins in the beginning. And I think that's an important thing to say because I experience a lot of Christians who their assumption is very different than that. They're like, I feel like the Old Testament and the New Testament are so different and I don't even know how to fit them together. I I read the Old Testament. I see this God of wrath and, and judgment and all these laws and regulations and there's, there's weird things. There's animal sacrifices and like slavery and multiple wives and all this smiting going on. It's just this weird collage of things. And then I get to the New Testament. I see this God of grace and mercy and love and compassion. And it kind of makes a little more sense. And it just feels very different. So can we just kind of, now that we're here, can we kind of get rid of this and kind of just move on to what really counts? And I'm just going to say, and I hope that you will be convinced by the end of this summer, that 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 is based on a very superficial reading of both the Old and the New Testaments. And that the more I read the story, I see a deep consistency and coherence in who God is and what he's been doing all along. The more I read the Old Testament, I see a God who is full of patience and compassion and mercy and faithfulness for, for people who often are very unfaithful. And the more I read Jesus, I see a guy who's actually not all the time meek and mild, but often places very strong demands on people on how they should live and comes with strength and is looking for justice. So I don't see the incoherence. The more I read, I see a deep consistency. Again, of course, the new covenant, something new is happening, but it's very much a continuation. I do not think that you can understand Jesus Christ without understanding the Old Testament story. And even more importantly, I don't think Jesus understood himself outside of the story that God had been telling all along from Genesis to Malachi. All right, so I just, I wanted to get that out there, and you guys can talk about that after the service and try to prove me wrong. Um, So uh, I'm going to tell you the story. Right now, I'm going to take the next 25 to 30 minutes to tell you the story of the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, this story is going to come complete with a multimedia presentation, um, complete with stick figures as you've gotten used to. I learned a new feature on Keynote, so I'm really upping my game today. Um, But the same Dave that you've come to love in his presentation will come out big time today. Um, And just a word, so this is going to be very much visual. And let me just say... You know, I always do this. I'm not trying to be cute or dismissive, like, of the important ideas. These images are how, that is what helps me think and understand. And so I give you, to the best of my ability, what kind of helps me think and understand. And my my goal, particularly in this, was my litmus test was I want to be able to tell this story in a way that my oldest daughter, who is six, can understand. Okay? I was able to share that with my six and four-year-old this week on Wednesday night, and they understood it. All right? So if you don't understand this uh, this morning, you know, that's on you. <laughs> all right, so here we go. God's story culminating in Jesus in the next 25 minutes. Are you ready? Go. Set your timers. Here we go. Boom. 
All right, so I, I want to give you a timeline of the world, um, beginning with Adam. We don't know the dating of that, of course. And then to Jesus. What's helpful, and I, I'm trying to give you teaching tools here, is that uh, there's these, every 500 years, there's a key figure or event, beginning in 2000 BC, 1500 BC, 1500. Those are not exact dates, but generally to get you kind of situated with the timeline. Each section has a key historical figure or event. So in 2000, you have the calling of Abraham. Then 500 years later, you have the story of Moses. And then 500 years later, King David. And then the exile when Israel was sent out of the land. And then 500 years later, Jesus. All right? So we're going to keep coming back to this timeline as I walk you through the story. To just kind of situate yourself. Where are we again? Here's where we are. All right. So let's go back to the beginning. Whatever BC, whatever dating, we have no idea um, what that is. But... Here's the story. In the beginning, there was nothing. Uh, and in, in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I got ridiculed. This really shouldn't be North America. You know, uh, I wish we could have this turnaround. But um, God created the heavens and the earth. He, he, he created all that is. And he created this beautiful world full of order and diversity and life and goodness it, it was a world that reflected his, his goodness. It was a beautiful place. And at the, at the pinnacle of his creation, he created these creatures that were going to be unique among his creation, humanity. And we learned that there are two things that are particularly unique about them. First, he created them in his image. There's something godlike about these creatures that, that at, at least I would say gave them a unique capacity to relate to God, um, maybe gave them unique qualities among all the creatures that God made. But they had, there was a unique identity as being his image bearers. And then because of that, he gave them a unique role in his creation, which was to rule. I want you to go out and rule over my creation. Go fill my world with goodness and justice and truth and creativity and beauty. Basically, there's this, there's this unpotentialized world that you're going to go out and, and fill. So God was inviting humanity to be partners with him and his creation, to go out and fill God's world with God's image and God's glory. All right? So God takes the first uh, couple, Adam and Eve, and places them in this beautiful garden, the Garden of Eden. And God puts a tree in the middle of this garden. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he gives them one limitation, which is don't eat from this tree. And I think what God is doing in that limitation is saying this to these people. He's saying, trust me. I want you to trust me. Okay, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that. I don't want you to decide for yourselves what is good and what is evil. I want you to trust that I know it's good for you. I know it's bad for you. Depend on me for that knowledge, okay? Trust me. But of course, we know that there was an enemy in the garden. It was, we find out later, it was Satan uh, disguised as this snake. And there came a decision at the tree. And, and the snake said this. He gave them a lie, which is this, actually, you can't trust God. Okay? You, you shouldn't trust. God's, tr God's holding you back. God is withholding something good from him. You shouldn't have to depend on him from that knowledge. You should decide for yourselves what is good and what is wrong. You should decide for yourselves how you live your life. And they bought in to the lie of the serpent. And they, they took for themselves, we're going to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. And in that moment, sin entered their hearts and sin entered the world. And they immediately start hiding from God and covering themselves. 
and, uh, and blaming one another for what happened. And what you see in the rest of this early history is the spread of sin into humanity. So rather than partnering with God, um, they're spreading their sin. So beginning with this couple, we hear the story of their nuclear family, which spreads to their, their children, Cain and Abel. And we see the sinful nature of Cain as he murders Abel. Uh, and then in the rest of the history, we see, yep, you saw it. Um, and then in the rest of this, we see the gradual spread of sin into human society, okay? So rather than partnering with God to spread his goodness and shalom, they are spreading sin. And this spread of sin culminates in the building of a tower in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, which is the ultimate expression of independence from God. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to, we want to be God. We want to make a tower that reaches to heaven. And so this creates this great problem which is what is God going to do about this problem of human sin? And the answer that we're going to find in Abraham is this. God is going to take one of these people and his family, and he's going to do something special in that one family that will then spread to all the families of the world. All right? So that gets us now to Abraham around 2000 BC. So, God takes one of those families, a man and his wife, Abraham and Sarah. They're just a random family with a sinful nature living in a pagan world, just doing their thing. And God invites them into this radical journey with him where he says, leave basically everything you've ever known. Leave your country and your people and go to the land that I will show you. Inviting them into this adventure with him. And you may remember the story. God takes Abraham out into the night sky. Remember this story? And he enters into a covenant with Abraham, a, a partnership, a binding relationship with him. And he says, look up at the stars. Can you count all the stars? No, you can't count them all. Well, that's how many descendants. I will give you descendants as numerous as the stars. Which is a funny thing to say to this guy because he was 75 at the time and his wife was 65. They were not able to have children. And so he takes this couple that cannot have children and says, I'm going to do something miraculous through you. I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars. He also promises them, I'm going to give you a land, the land of Canaan. And this is the big one. He says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless all the nations through you. I want to use you and do something special with you so that through you, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth. And so they begin this journey well, what they're being asked to do is essentially this, trust and obey. <laughs> I want you to trust me, God's saying, even when you can't see what's going on, trust me and obey me. Walk with me. And the rest of Genesis, Genesis tells the story of this family. First, you have Abraham and Sarah. Uh, then they have this miracle boy, Isaac, whose name means laughter. This amazing, miraculous birth that God gives them. Uh, he marries Rebekah. Uh, they give birth to Esau, right, and his twin brother, Jacob. Jacob marries Leah, and Jacob marries Leah's sister. There's a story there to be told, uh, Rachel. And the, together, those three have 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. And when it comes to Abraham and his family, in terms of this question of how did they do it, trusting and obeying God, the story goes, well, they were pretty uh, hit and miss. Oftentimes, more miss than hit, okay? So Abraham and Sarah made a couple really 
bad decisions that kind of affected human history. Um, you have Jacob and Esau that had this very dysfunctional relationship. You have Jacob's two wives. And then these 12 boys, and you think of the story of these 12 boys and Joseph and their jealousy about Joseph and his coat. So what you get is this, there's nothing perfect about this family. They're dysfunctional. They're broken. They're messy, just like any other family. But you see God's faithfulness to his promises to this family to stay true to them, even through the messiness of their sinful lives. Well, under the 12, uh, there's a famine in the land, and then they end up going down to Egypt through God's beautiful plan of, of rescuing them through Joseph. And they come down to Egypt, and that brings us now to the next part of the timeline. About 500 years later, they're in Egypt for several hundred years, and that brings us to the time of Moses. So uh, the people are now in Egypt. They've been there for hundreds of years. Uh, and um, Exodus 1 tells us that there they have multiplied greatly. They have increased in numbers and become numerous. So already you see God's promise to Abraham beginning to be fulfilled and all these amazing descendants. Now the problem is, of course, uh, in Egypt, uh, they have become enslaved, right? So they are now slaves in Egypt, they're this ethnic minority living in uh, the most powerful empire in the world at that time. But their slavery, their bondage provides God with the opportunity to do his greatest act of redemption in the Old Testament, which is clearly the Exodus. This is the defining event in the Jewish scriptures. And so God raises up this man, Moses, right? who is himself a very imperfect person. And he comes to Moses and he says, Moses, I have seen the misery of my people. I've heard their cries and I have come down to rescue them. And we learn a lot about who God is in this story. We, we learn that, that God is faithful to his covenant. He made these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob hundreds of years earlier and he is remaining faithful to his covenant. We learn about his character he describes himself as, I am Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And we learn about his fundamental role with his people, which is the role of a liberator, that he comes to liberate, to rescue, to redeem his people from bondage and slavery. That is his role with his people. And so you know the story. Through these mighty acts, these ten plagues, he rescues his people from the most powerful man and empire in the world, brings them through the Red Sea, and then out into the wilderness, takes them to Mount Sinai. Okay? And at Mount Sinai, under the leadership of Moses, he enters into a covenant with them, just as he did with Abraham. Now he's covenanting with the people of Abraham. The fundamental covenant is this. You will be my people and I will be your God. We're going to have this special relationship together, just as I promised Abraham. Okay. And part of the covenant, God gives them the law, okay, the Jewish law, 613 commandments that describe, um, here's what it means to obey me. So Abraham got trust and obey. Israel gets trust and obey. And obey, by obey, here's what I mean for you guys. I'm going to be a little more explicit in these 613 commands. But those 613 commands can be very easily summarized in the 10 commandments that God gave them at Mount Sinai. Those 10 commandments themselves can be easily summarized in two commandments. First, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the first four commandments. 
And second, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second six of the Ten Commandments. That's it. That's what I want for you. Love me. Love your neighbor as yourself. God also gives them as part of the law the whole sacrificial system for the Jews, right? So they're to build a a tabernacle, and there's a priestly line, and there's these animal sacrifices uh, that they're supposed to do. This is part of what he wants them to do in this season of their nation's history. So what's really important here, this is where I think a lot of us start to go, ah, this is starting to feel like a lot of laws, a lot of rules, regulations, a lot of blood, a lot of smelling uh, hair that's being burned. Like, this is what I don't like, right? (laughs) So just to remind you two things. First, um, the relationship is still about God's grace, okay? This is not salvation by works, right? Their relationship started in Egypt when God, by his sheer grace, rescued them from bondage before they had obeyed any of his commandments. It was the sovereign and gracious initiative of God that brings about this relationship, not their ability to fulfill the law, okay? Even the Ten Commandments begin not with the first commandment. You know how the Ten Commandments begin? God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, Therefore, you shall have no other gods. So this is, this is initiated and sustained by God's grace. Yes, they're being asked to do something, but God is gracious in this. And even the whole sacrificial system and all of that, why does the sacrificial system exist? For these people to experience the forgiveness of their sins. This becomes a way that sinful people can live and be the people of a holy God. So he's providing forgiveness of sins through the system. So that's important to remember. The second thing that's important to remember is, while this is so specific to Israel, God always still has the nations in mind when he's doing this with them, right? He's saying, yeah, you're going to be my people, but the point is so that you can be a light to the nations. Even in Exodus 19 at Sinai, God says, I want you to be a kingdom of priests for me. Now, what do priests do? Priests are mediators between God and people. And God is saying, you as a nation, you're the priests of the world. You're going to be the mediators, the go-betweens between me and the rest of the nations. The, the nations will be blessed through you. And in fact, the more that you're able to obey my laws, the way I want you to live, that will be the way that you bless the nations because that will make you look different from the nations and they will see that there's something different about you. This is what Moses says in Deuteronomy. He says, obey these laws carefully for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. All right? You with me? Right? Okay. So he takes them on this journey uh, through the wilderness and then into the promised land. And what we learn about these people is that when it comes to trusting and obeying God, uh, they are very hit and miss. Uh, More often miss than hit. So they come out of Egypt. uh, They wander for 40 years right through the desert. And you see their inability to trust God. Like, where's the food? Where's the water around the desert? Can't we just go back to Egypt? Of course, they build the golden calf. So you see this just, they're having a hard time trusting, obeying. God is faithful to them. And then through Joshua's leadership, they enter into the promised land. And then in the time of the judges, they slowly begin to defeat the nations and and set up residence in the promised land. But even in the time of the judges, as they're, as they're, uh, working and trying to move, remove people, you still see just their, their inability to trust and obey. They, the judge is all about what I call the, the spiritual amnesia, 
of, of the people where like um, God will rescue them from some invader and they'll experience a time of peace. And because they're at peace and they forget about God and they stop obeying God. And then some invader will come in again and they'll remember, oh, we need God. And they'll cry out and God will rescue them. And then they'll go back and there's just this spiritual amnesia. They just come again and again. But eventually they settle into the land and they remain there for several hundreds of years. That brings us now to the time of King David. All right, so they're settled in the land, and they're just a loose confederation of tribes, and, and they think, you know, it'd be good to have a king. And they say to God, uh, we want a king to rule over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Uh, that's an unfortunate request for two reasons. Um, first, God wanted to be their king. And he says, I, I want to, you can trust me. Like, no, we don't want this God we can't see. We, we want a human king that we can see and touch. We want that. And then secondly, why do we want a king? Oh, we want to be like all the other nations. All the other nations have kings. We want to be like the other nations. And God had said, I don't want you to be like the other nations. That's the whole point. I want you to be different so that you can bless the other nations. But they said, no, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations. Uh, And interestingly, God grants them this request. And he first gives them King Saul, who who is the perfect king from a human standpoint. He's big and strong and tall. He's everything you'd want on paper. Uh, turns out to not be a great king in the end. And then God raises up, up a king that he says, I'm going to raise up a king after my own heart. And so he raises up King David, uh, this shepherd king who uh, helps to defeat Israel's enemies and really bring in a time of peace. Uh, he conquers Jerusalem, sets up a capital city in Jerusalem. And what's amazing is God takes this, in some ways, unfaithful request for a king And he weaves it into his sovereign plans and purposes for his people and even blesses the kingship as part of his plan. And he enters into a covenant with King David and the kings that would come after him. He says this, I'm going to raise up your offspring, speaking of David, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Saying, I am blessing this idea of kings, David. You will have an offspring, and he will have an eternal throne. And so this begins the line of Israel's kings, Israel's messiahs, Israel's anointed ones, or the sons of God. They're all given those terms throughout the scriptures. These are God's chosen kings. And the idea is is that they are, like the people, supposed to trust and obey God. They're not supposed to use their power for their own advantage, uh, for their own wealth, but they're supposed to model to Israel what it means to be a follower of Yahweh, to trust and obey him, to serve the people, to bring justice. Now, what we learn about the kings of Israel over the years is uh, when it comes to trusting and obeying, they're pretty hit and miss. In fact, usually more miss than hit. And so you get about a couple hundred years of the line of kings. And what you find out is rather than use, they they end up using their power to their own advantage. They heavily tax the people. They grow wealthy. uh, They fall away from God. They do not enact justice as God wanted. And when it comes to the people, the people basically go the way of the kings. All right. So just two generations after David, there's a civil war in the country. The, the country is divided into a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern king of Judah. And the people slowly begin to wander away from the Lord and disobey him. They don't trust him. They don't obey him. This is the time where God begins to raise up prophets. These men who would step into both kingdoms 
and with this call, and the fundamental call is return to the Lord. Return to your covenant agreement with God. He loves you. You're his people. Uh, he's your God. And return to the Lord. And they call Israel out for two primary sins. First, the sin of idolatry, that Israel starts worshiping other gods besides Yahweh, the gods of the cultures around them. And they call out the injustice of the people, that they're oppressing the poor. There's no justice in the courts, which is ironic because Israel had been slaves. They had been this oppressed minority group and God had redeemed them. And he had always wanted them to care for the poor and needy among them in light of their own story. And yet they failed at that. And when you think about the two great commandments of God, okay, they failed on both accounts. The first one was love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Well, idolatry is precisely the opposite. (laughs) No, we're going to love other gods. And love your neighbor as yourself. No, we're going to live lives of injustice. We're not loving to those around us, especially the poor and needy. So they're breaking the two commandments. And with this, they're not being a light to the nations. Just the opposite. They look exactly like the nations around them. They're worshiping the nation's gods. And the same injustice that exists in the nations exists in them. So that brings us then to the exile. So just as God had warned, as he had threatened, this is what happens. These foreign kingdoms come from the north and the east, first Assyria and then Babylon. They come in, they conquer the northern and southern kingdom, and they carry them off as slaves into exile. And the people end up in Babylon. They're back in the status that they were in in Egypt, in bondage, in slavery, this time completely of their own doing, by their own uh, bad choices. This is the low point in Israel's history, easily to be said, the, the low point. But this is the point at which the prophet's message changes from one of warning to one of hope. And the prophets start talking about a new covenant. And God offers these beautiful promises of hope. I'm going to bring you back into the land. And he says, my servant David will lead you. The king will lead you once again. I'm going to give you new hearts. He's going to do a spiritual renewal through his Holy Spirit in their hearts. And he says, finally, you will be a light to the nations. The nations will stream to you and be blessed by you as I promised Abraham. The prophets also, especially the prophet Isaiah, starts talking about this um, mysterious figure called the servant of the Lord. And at first it seems like the servant is Israel, but then it seems like the servant is an individual person who embodies who Israel is and who's going to have this ministry of justice and teaching and then a ministry of suffering and death. And somehow through his suffering and death, he is going to bring blessing to the nations. Well, God begins to fulfill these promises, and under King Cyrus, the king of Persia, Cyrus allows exiles to return to their native land, and so they're able to come back. At least a group of Jews are able to come back onto the promised land under people. This is like the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, They rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem. They even rebuild the temple of Jerusalem, and they come back in the land. But the return is is quite anticlimactic in the end. Okay, Um, there's no deep spiritual renewal in the people's hearts. They're still being disobedient to God. Um, There's no king on the throne. And they're still under the oppression of foreign countries that are ruling, even though they're back in their hometown. Ultimately, Rome comes in and asserts control there. So it's very very anticlimactic with so much waiting to be fulfilled. 
All right, so that's the story of the Hebrew Scriptures. And that takes us then 500 years later to Jesus. Now, they come back into the land, and there's like 400 years of silence. No prophetic activity at all. And then, in about the year zero, more or less, a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth comes onto the scene. And he comes with this sense of being part of this great story. And he comes with a sense of him being the fulfillment of this great story. Now that you've heard the story, you can begin to see how this all culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the new Adam, Scripture will tell us. He is the one who is truly made in the image of God. And he shows us what it means to truly live as human beings who are image bearers what that looks like. And he comes to defeat our ancient foe, the serpent in the garden. We'll look at that next week. Um, He is the one who brings Abraham's blessing. He is the Israelite who finally fulfills the blessing uh, of Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He is the new Moses. He has come to liberate God's people from their slavery and bondage. Uh, That whole sacrificial system In the old covenant, Um, he is all of that. He is the priest. He is the new high priest. He is the sacrifice all in one. It is through his death that he brings forgiveness for God's people. Um, He is the last and great prophet. He is the one who speaks God's word to God's people. His words of warning, his words of comfort and encouragement. Um, He is the servant of the Lord. The one who would have this ministry of justice and teaching and then suffering and death that would bring blessing to the peoples. He is, of course, the great messianic king, God's anointed, the one from the line of David who would sit on a throne and rule forever. This is who he is. All of these fulfillments of these human figures throughout the story. And of course, on top of all of that, not just these human figures, but he is God himself, the covenant maker stepping into human history as a human being to do for his people what his people never could do for themselves. I love what Paul says in in 2 Corinthians. He says, all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. And I think that's what he's saying. The whole story culminates and is fulfilled in him. So there's the story in about 30 minutes. And what we're going to do this summer is each week we're going to tackle one of these, some of these and even more than these themes. We'll tackle one of these themes and look at each one of these themes in detail. And again, the goal is to, to see Jesus in the fullness, in the depth and diversity of who he is, to start to search out what Paul says, as what Paul calls the unsearchable riches of Christ. So I hope that by the end of the summer, we have a deeper understanding and appreciation for who Jesus is. And I'll just let you know, um, this is not going to be a how-to series, okay? Not going to be a lot of, you know, here's the three steps to a a better life. Um, The goal of this series is all about worship. It's a reminder that um, what we worship defines who we are. What we consider truly valuable and beautiful and compelling in life absolutely shapes who we are and how we live our lives. And so our goal is to see Jesus again and to look at him and say, there is nothing more beautiful and more valuable than you. And I want to give my life to you. And I want to find myself within this beautiful story that's being told for thousands and thousands of years now. So that's the plan. 
right? So let's pray, and then we're going to just spend some time worshiping God in light of this story and who he is and how we see him and how we see Jesus. Let me pray, and then we'll sing. Lord, it's so good every once in a while just to step back and, and, and see the forest again. Be reminded of this grand story that you are writing and that you have entered into yourself in the person of Jesus. To see your promises, your faithfulness to your covenant, to see your, your sovereign ability to, to do what you want through brokenness and messiness, and yet that doesn't in any way disrupt your plan. To see your power at work, your faithfulness, and ultimately to see your son, Jesus, as the one who is uh, the fulfillment of all of our deepest hopes, whether we realize it or not. <laughs> um, he is the fulfillment of the, of the deepest hopes and desires of the human heart. So this summer, and even now as we worship you, will you fill us with a sense of uh, renewed awe and wonder and appreciation for who you are? And a a desire to step into your story and play whatever part you're asking us to play to begin to be people who fill your creation with your goodness and your image and your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.